Um, I'm Fiona, and I'll be reading the first reading for tonight, which will be Psalm 100. If you pull out your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 593, and that's Psalm 100, and on page 593. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Hi, I'm Luke. The second reading is from uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 on page 1112. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. We're going to... Whoa, there I am. We're back. We're going to talk about thankfulness, uh, as you know by now. Uh, thankfulness, as we've seen in the video, actually, was great, great, and I think we'll do them again. We'll see Camilla in her element uh, once more. Um, thankfulness is something actually a lot of people think matters. And uh, now we could talk about thankfulness in all sorts of different ways, but I think most people believe it's important and that it does you good, and that if you don't do it, bad things happen. Um, I think when you're talking about thankfulness, where things become interesting is when you're talking about things that are not just about one person and another. Uh, We're talking about being thankful not just to another person, uh, but just for something nobody's really done. When somebody recovers from an illness, for example, or somebody has a baby, you know, people like doctors and so on, and we've got lots of them here, um, they may be involved, but often they didn't actually do it, you know? They were just kind of there helping out. Um, or when you're unexpectedly fortunate in some way or other and things just work out wonderfully, but it's nobody's actual doing. That's just the way things turned out. In my experience, people kind of instinctively feel that they should be thankful at moments like this, uh, but they don't always know how to do it or who to be thankful to. Um, some people just decide that they should just be positive, uh, just generally kind of thankful Others kind of instinctively thank everybody they can. When my daughter Frances was born, we just kind of thanked everybody who'd been involved. Now, actually, medical staff had helped keep her alive, but, you know, we were just thanking everybody, and some of them were like, that's fine, I was just on the desk, you know. Um, Other people thank God. Other people thank the universe, thankfulness. Other people thank God. I remember a guy at my old church, a guy just turned up one day... uh, because um, his first child had been born, 
And he just felt thankful. And so he thought he should come to church. Now, the Bible says that that attitude is actually profoundly right, uh, more right than we think, actually, as I'll go on to say. But the Bible says we're really meant to give thanks to God. Uh, more than that, we're actually, we're actually made for it, and failure to do it is deeply ugly. I don't know if you noticed that in that second reading from Romans, but it actually says that failure to give thanks by human beings is almost the heart of what's wrong with the world. It's a thing that makes us guilty before God. That's kind of a heavy thought, isn't it? That, that giving thanks to God could be almost the center of what our lives are meant to be about. Um, as a conclusion of our series on Psalms today, as I said, we're looking at thankfulness. Uh, and, and we're doing it by looking at this psalm, this little unobtrusive psalm, Psalm 100, which as we read it, you might have thought, what are we really going to say about that? But the reason it's helpful is because although we might know that thankfulness is important, we might know that thankfulness to God is important, we often don't go beyond that. We often don't go beyond that acknowledgement that thankfulness matters and ask more about it. What does it involve? Is there a particular shape it should ideally take? But if we stop and think about it, they're actually pretty good questions to ask, aren't they? Because what if it were possible to give thanks in deeper, richer ways? What if, in fact, we owe God a thankfulness that goes beyond our standard old forms of thankfulness, like, say, saying grace when you have a meal? Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's great. But what if we could learn to give thanks in fuller, richer ways? The little psalm before us this morning, Psalm 100, is designed to help with precisely that question. It'd be great if you had it in front of you, actually. Because um, this psalm is a guide to thanksgiving. Its heading shows us that. If you can see in the small text bit there, those small texts in the psalms, just below the number, are actually there in the original. They're not just headings added in. And this says, a psalm for giving thanks. This is, that is, this is an authoritative form of thanksgiving. Uh, most of this psalm takes the form of what are called imperatives, calls to do something, you know, shout aloud, uh, come, worship, give thanks. This is a call to give thanks and to do it in a particular way. And the beauty of this psalm is that it shows us what a deeper, richer form of thanksgiving might look like. It shows us Two things. It shows us first the form of thanksgiving, and second, it shows us the basis for it. And if we pause long, uh, long enough over this psalm, I think we'll see that it is both a challenge and an invitation to learn to give thanks in a deeper, richer way. So I just want to invite you to come with me then. Have a look at it. Um, first then, at the form of thanksgiving. What does this psalm tell us about what a deeper thanksgiving could look like? Uh, we can sum it up, I think, in the three central imperatives in, in, in verses 1, 3, and 4. See them there? Shout, know, and enter. Shout, verse 1, know, verse 3, verse 4, enter. Uh, thanksgiving, this psalm calls us to, the thanksgiving it calls us to involves shouting, knowing, and entering. Well, what, did, what does that mean? Well, first, shout. This psalm calls for thanksgiving that involves joyful proclamation. Shout aloud, 
Sorry, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, verse 1. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. You get the feel of these lines, right? Gladness, joy, joyful songs. The repetition shows that this is actually important. Thanksgiving ought to be joyful, not just glum and somber and serious. Well, serious, maybe, but joyful. Shout aloud. The tone is like, imagine, you know, you're at a football match when your team scores. You know the feeling, you're waiting for it, and they score, and you all go up in the air at the same time. It's a moment of kind of joy, and it's almost like that. Notice as well that this is not simply a private joyfulness. Shout to the Lord all the earth, the psalm begins. This is not just a private act of kind of thanksgiving in my heart. It's a call to everybody who listen to join in. It's an invitation. It's a thanksgiving that's not limited to the personal and the private, but that becomes public in joyful song. Do we give thanks like this? Do we know this joyful, excited exuberance? The point is not actually shouting, of course. right? We don't have a lot of context in church where that is easy to do and not feel completely weird. Though if we wanted to do it, we could do it, couldn't we? We could make that happen. But the shouting is not the key thing. The point is the gladness, the exaltation. Is that part of our life as a community? As people. Now, sometimes it's legitimately hard to be joyful, of course. Sometimes we're, you know, depressed or tired or things are incredibly stressful and we can't muster up the enthusiasm. But you know what? Mostly that's not the case. Mostly we're just living normal lives like the people who first sang this song. And so we too are called to rejoice with feeling. Now, for some of us, I wonder if this is, or if it should be, a little, make us a little bit uncomfortable. Anglicans especially have made a kind of art form of reserve at all times in church, a reserve that borders sometimes on detachment, frankly. And we're not very happy when people do things like close their eyes while they're singing or lift their hands up. Do we have good reasons for that? Or are we just uncomfortable with enthusiasm? We'd feel better if people were just a bit more cautious, a bit more kind of reserved. You know, I think we need to hear and feel the challenge of this first line of the psalm, to give thanks with joyful shouts. That doesn't have to mean lifting up your hands. That is not the point at all. But the point is that we should actually be glad And, you know, I think, just as a side point, I think this would actually be quite powerful in our culture. Because for many people, there is not a lot of joy to be had in the world. And there loom on the horizon problems so big that they seem to suck the meaning and joyfulness out of everything. And for us as a community to be, without denying the problems and the difficulty, to be genuinely and deeply joyful... That, that would be deeply compelling and powerful. It, it could be the key to serious growth. People hearing the gospel, because people might actually believe us when we say we've got good news. 
Well, shout. Second point, no. The psalm calls us, secondly, for thanksgiving, to thanksgiving that involves knowing. That is, humble acknowledgement of the content of faith. Humble confession of who God is and where we stand in relation to him. Verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his, the people of his pasture. The sheep, sorry, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Do you notice how simple that central confession is? The Lord is God. But precisely its simplicity shows us how profound that confession is. When we give thanks, we ought to recognize that there there really is a God. And we know who he is. He's the Lord. The Lord is God. And we therefore stand in a relationship of total dependence upon him. He made us. He is our creator. And we are the thing he has made. And so we are his. We belong to him. He owns us. And so it's a confession that demands humility. Our standing before him is quite seriously like sheep before a shepherd. Now, it's true that in the Bible, God being a shepherd is good news, right? But before we get to that, we should also notice that it means that we are sheep. Utterly dependent upon him. Totally at his mercy. And that's what we must know when we confess, what we must confess and remember when we give thanks. Friends, that's not actually an easy thing to do, is it? For two reasons at least. First, we are proud. Even if we believe that that is true, we shy away from actually acknowledging it. We kind of pretend it's not true. We just don't mention it very much. Because we don't like admitting that we're dependent in that way. The great ambition of our world is to be independent. A self-made person. But in thanksgiving, we're called to confess that aspiration for the nonsense that it is. We're called to remember that we are creatures and not God. And that he is our rightful ruler and owner in the most total sense. And that we're like his sheep. And that that is a challenge to our pride that we shouldn't underestimate. But it's difficult also because it's so assured, so convinced The Lord is God. There's not a lot of hedging your bets there. I don't know how you felt when we did that confession of faith before. It can feel a bit unnerving, a bit kind of... Because we don't stand up and say, we are pretty sure there's something in this Christianity thing. We'll stand up and say, we don't say... Jesus is the image of the invisible world. We're making a massive claim there. And... That is the kind of thing that people find deeply troubling. Isn't it arrogant? But the psalm calls us to make a clear and unashamed confession as part of our giving thanks. Third point then, enter. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Now, this third point reminds us quite clearly that we're not the original readers and singers of this song, right? This is speaking to Israelite pilgrims entering the temple, and maybe Roger's done that on the temple foundations, but we don't do that most of the time. 
But that doesn't mean this verse can't help us because it teaches us, I think, to value corporate worship. That is, gathering together for worship as an aspect of thanksgiving. You see, this psalm calls worshippers to come in, to gather together as a body of believers for this special moment of collective worship. They have to do something together at a particular place, at a particular time, for an occasion. Now, I want to do just a little bit of theological thinking at this point, um, because we need to, it's a bit tricky. This idea of place, though, it has at least two sides to it here. On the one hand, it's a recognition that there is this particular place in the Old Testament, the temple that God has chosen, and that's going to be his meeting point with humanity. That's a big theme in the Old Testament. We looked at it last year, right? And that's why the worshippers are to come here, because it's God's special place. Now, the Bible teaches that that sense of place just no longer applies to us. Because in the story of the Bible, the temple has been replaced, replaced by Jesus. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, no particular place is special and he's accessible from everywhere now. But there's another kind of more normal idea to place in this psalm, which Jesus doesn't abolish, but I think actually reaffirms. You see, the mention of place in this psalm is also just a recognition that human beings are bodies. And so if we're going to do things together, we need places. Places to gather and to sing and to pray. And what God has done in Jesus actually makes that aspect of place much more important. Because the Bible is very clear, Christians are meant to meet together. They did it from the first days. You read about it in Acts. They gathered together for fellowship, breaking bread, singing, and um, listening to the scriptures. And we're called to keep doing it in no uncertain terms. And that means that places still matter. Not in the sense that the temple mattered, but in the sense that we are free to set apart places for these occasions of worship. And that's the foundation of actually a solid Christian thinking about church buildings. Church buildings are not temples, right? Because Jesus is the temple now. But precisely because of that, we are free to value places anew and to value with them the times we set aside to come together in them. And that, I think, is why... The thoroughly Christian, right, thoroughly reformed, thoroughly evangelical builders of this building are so kind of, so reformed that they didn't even put any pictures in the windows. If you've ever seen a stained glass, no pictures, right, because they're worried about idolatry. But they still wrote that. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, as I've said before, I think that that almost obscures the fact that church buildings are not temples. But the flip side of that is actually a right valuing of this place as the thing God has given us for this special occasion. Now, all of this means, all of that kind of long, complex story, all of it adds up to this. I think we should hear the call in verse 4 as a call to value church services extremely highly. 
and to make them a high priority. We are called to make corporate worship central to our thanksgiving. Now, we need to think about this because we tend to have a highly individualistic view of faith. We're a me society, as the guy said. The old guy, he was like, man, I wish it was the 50s, whatever. <laughs> Probably, I think he's right about this, though. Right? We, we have an individualistic culture where what matters is, is my faith between me and God and church attendance is kind of, it might or might not help that out and it's not, that, it's not as important. But that's just not how it is in the Bible. In the Bible, it's not just about me and God, it's us and God always. Now, I'm not about to lay down rules about how many church services you're allowed to miss and so on. That would be bad. But I think it means our attitude should be, I'm going to be there every time if I possibly can, so that my presence can be relied on. I think that's a good test, actually. Do other people feel like your presence at church can be relied on? Maybe you should ask them. Brothers and sisters, to give thanks more richly and deeply involves coming to church. And when I say that, actually, I mean come here. Come to this place. Enter through the doors over there. Get past the slightly awkward welcomers and the terrible name tags. Step over the dangerous crack. Find a seat, maybe towards the front. Radical. It's not about, it's not about the place. And yes, we could do church in any old place. But we don't. We do church in this old place. This beautiful place God has given older generations and us to meet in. But it's such an effort, isn't it? And coming to church is so costly. It costs us in time and in opportunities with friends and family. If we're really going to be there, it costs us as well because church is so irritating. The leadership and the preachers always say irritating things. The hierarchy always lets us down and they make mistakes. It's so much easier, isn't it, to maintain a kind of respectful, critical distance from the whole operation. And the building is, I mean, it might be beautiful, but it's kind of annoying. The pews are uncomfortable. It's about to get freezing cold. And the only heaters we've got are these weird things we got from the set of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which don't work. This little psalm, then, is actually more challenging than it first appears. Because what it does is call us to give thanks in a richer, more deliberate, more demanding way than we are normally prepared to do. And you know what? All of this, I think, means that we start to ask two questions. First, do we really need to bother with all this? I mean, why should we prescribe the way we give thanks like this? Because why complicate it, Errington? Can't we just do it our way? Can't we just give thanks in, in whatever way kind of works for us, what's genuine or, and authentic for us? Do we really need to give thanks like this? But secondly, even if we want to do this, how, how can we do it? Because the thanksgiving we're called to is not something you can just do, like being told to mow the lawn. 
Because it requires of us not just actions, but that our hearts be in it. We're called to real joy, genuine humility, honest conviction. They're not things you can just conjure up. So it's all very well to be told to be joyful, but how do you just how do you just do that? Especially if things are hard. This might be a higher form of thanksgiving, but is it, is it really a possibility? These are really good questions, actually. But there is an answer to them. And it lies in the last verse of the psalm. The psalm concludes with this single sentence that reminds us why we owe this thanksgiving and what can make it possible. Verse 5, For the Lord is good. And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Now, if you're a reader of the Old Testament, these words will probably be familiar. They're like a standard expression, standard phrase. And the danger with that is that we don't notice them. We just go, yeah, yeah, that bit. But they're actually brilliant. And they became a standard expression because they're so brilliant, because they they perfectly sum up what Israel had come to know about God, his goodness, his love, and his faithfulness. In fact, the word for love in the Hebrew is this great word, chesed. You want to have a go at saying it? Try it afterwards. Chesed. It's a great word, and it's hard to get it exactly right because it's got so much resonance in the Bible. It conjures up so much stuff in the Bible from the Exodus right through the Old Testament because it means God's steadfast love, his loyal commitment I was trying to work out a way to kind of sum it up. And um, anybody remember that show Hornblower? Right? Hornblower's boat was called the indefatigable, which is a terrible word, but it means never tires, never, you can never get it down. These words, what they're trying to get at is the indefatigable, gracious love of God. Unstoppably loving and faithful. That's the goodness it's talking about here. And that, friends, is helpful for us because it reminds us that these words find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God in action. Because in Jesus, God has given us this incredible gift of himself. He has, and he has shown us that he is just what this psalm says. Good. Loving and faithful. And brothers and sisters, that is why we owe God thanksgiving. And not just any old thanksgiving, the richest, deepest thanksgiving we can, we can get to. Because who he is and what he has done is magnificent. He has shown us his love in the most astonishing way, giving us a gift we can never anywhere near repay his son to die to be our saviour. He deserves our joyful shouts, our humble conviction and our committed service to his people and anything less is not worthy of him. But also this knowledge of God's goodness of Jesus is also what can make thanksgiving like this possible. Because when you get hold of who God is 
and what he's done for us in Jesus, then thanksgiving turns from a burden and a task into a privilege and a joy. Jesus' resurrection means life, and so he can fill us with a joy and a boldness that is real and genuine and doesn't disappear when things get tough. And Jesus has made God known, and so he can grow in us a conviction that is not about our own arrogance, but is about him, and that means we can stand firm in the face of opposition. And he can grow in us a humility that no longer resents his rule, And he has showered such grace upon us that no service to him can ever be too much. And church can become a privilege and a delight, not a task. Without Jesus, without our eyes fixed on him, we'll never really be able to give thanks. Because we'll try to be joyful, but it will just feel phony. And we'll try to be convicted but it will feel uncertain and we'll try to be humble, but we'll really resent God's rule and we'll try to be faithful at church, but it will become a chore. But with Jesus, when we really get hold of God's goodness and love and faithfulness in him and everything changes, he can make us shout and know and enter with glad hearts and no hypocrisy. Of course, it's one thing to say that, isn't it? It's another thing for us to actually put it into practice. We might know that that's true in theory, right? We might know that that's right, but it's quite another thing to keep operating like this. Even if we are thoroughly convinced about Jesus, who among us doesn't feel sometimes a bit joyless? Or timid or uncertain or resentful or annoyed to have to go to church? You know what, though? I think God knows that. I think he knows that that's what happens to us, that amidst all of life, we lose our focus and his grace slips from the center of our attention. And you know why I think that? Because he gave us this psalm. He gave us this psalm and others like it to remind us how to give thanks, and to remind us why we do it. See, by its very form, this psalm does what we want to do. It helps us rejoice. It helps us humbly confess what we believe. And it's designed as an act of corporate worship, something we're supposed to do together. You see, God knows that we need help to give him thanks as we should. And so I think one of the reasons he gave us the Psalms is to help us. And that's why, just as a small point at the end, that's actually one of the reasons we say Psalms together at church, which always feels a bit weird. But this is why we do it, because we need help, because we're still learners. We haven't become masters of thanksgiving yet. We're more like musical students of a musical instrument playing scales over and over again to try and work into our fingers new habits. That's why we say the Psalms. They're like our scales to learn the new way of life we want. And so to finish, let me just call you all, let me call us all, because we owe it to the Lord. Let me call you to commit to growing in thanksgiving, not to being perfect at it yet, 
but to learning to give thanks to God in deeper, richer ways. Maybe that will mean praying that God will free you to be joyful and bold. Maybe it will mean grappling more deeply with what you believe or repenting of pride so that you can confess with humble conviction that the Lord is God. Maybe it will mean committing yourself to being at church more regularly. Whatever it is, can I encourage you to make sure it's anchored in meditation on God's grace to us in Jesus and how because of him we can say with all our hearts that the Lord is good. I'm going to commit us to this as a church as well. I'm going to make sure we say Psalm 100 together. Some churches do it every week. We're not going to do that. But we're going to make it a regular part of our service. Try and work in these habits together. If you have a big problem with that, come and talk to me. But that's what I'd like to do. And we're going to finish, actually, by doing just that. So to finish, can I invite you to stand and open... Do we have Psalm 100 on the screen? I think we do. We're going to say this together. And we're going to do something radical. We're going to shout... The first line. Not the whole psalm, don't worry. We're not changing too fast. So, we're going to say this psalm together, and let me encourage you to make this a prayer of commitment to to learning to give thanks. We're going to say this, and we're going to sing a song. Let's shout the first line. You ready? Let's say it together. One, two, three. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. Amen.